My name is Adam Roberts, and I'm a vocal coach here in the live music capital of the world, Austin, Texas. I'm on a journey to learn the stories behind extraordinary voices of people I know and what makes them unique. Each of my guests has chosen to follow their voice. So this is Cola Voce. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Cola Voce. Adam Roberts here and I am talking across the miles today with one of my very good friends and former students, Nicole Davis. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Adam. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I am always so excited, as you know, for anything that we get to talk about together or to collaborate on. So, Nicole, I met you when you were in your senior year of college as an undergrad at St. Edwards University here in Austin. And I actually think I may have potentially met you your junior year, but just very quickly as we passed backstage during a production of Violet that I was vocal coaching there. But I really came to know you as a senior when we started to work on musical theater voice. Could you tell me a little bit about your growing up and your passion for performance? Where did that come from? Well, I, I'm Filipino <laughs> and I feel like it's just in the bloodline of most all Filipinos to just have a Whitney Houston song in the back of their mind. There's the national anthem and then there is I Will Always Love You as the, as the unofficial national anthem of the Philippines. Um, if you go to the Philippines, you go there, uh, Endless Love is still playing on the main radio station. It's, really? Yes, it's pretty fantastic. It comes on at least every two hours, and that's not even a joke. Oh my gosh, I think I want to move. <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you. I'll show you to go. But being Filipino um, and being around like a very lively culture, for one, um, that I didn't realize until this pandemic and talking with my family over Christmas, late Christmas talks at 2 a.m., <laughs> where um, apparently like it's a culture that was suppressed for 20 years because of a dictatorship. Uh -huh. So when they finally got to be themselves and be expressive and free, they like took to that. So a lot of Filipinos sing. It's kind of like in the bloodline to just be singers, to be entertainers, to, to entertain each other. And so I always grew up going to these parties that I kind of really hated when I was very little. But everyone would like um, very popular in Japanese culture too, like karaoke, right? everyone would be like singing karaoke all the time. And I grew up Catholic and the mixture of like being told like sing at karaoke and like sing at school was always like, wow, this is my time to sing. And I just thought everyone could sing because everyone who was Filipino sang, my mom sang and I just sang. And I remember first getting this little like vibrato in my voice and being like I can sing and feeling very special at like the age of five and doing it that way but really performing I think there was always a lively culture around me and there was just like this internal mechanism that I can't describe that was happiest whenever I was just vocally free and when I was singing there's family lore of that my grandma loves to tell me like to this day that when I was three months old she was rocking me back and forth, trying to get me to sleep. And my grandma actually was like second place nationally in some singing competition in the Whoa. Philippines. Way back in the day, my grandma's a beautiful singer and she's rocking me back and forth to sleep. And I'm three months old 
and she goes huh what what is that and then she like calls I think my mom over like my dad over or my grandpa or somebody over and then they're like do you hear that and then she sings again and then they hear the notes coming back to them and they go oh, oh my god is is it her is it is it baby Nika Nika is my family name and so then the family lore is at three months old I was singing back to my grandma <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that is that's it factor as we that, <laughs> I was born no to do it <laughs> and so then mix all of that into this like person artist cocktail of myself around like six I did my first school talent show and people just told me I had a great voice and I I remember asking my teacher had me like sing it again like privately for our classroom and they just like cheered me on and they're also happy and they literally always have me sing at church each and every time and I just thought that was the thing that people did I didn't think anything anything special of it other than like wow I love singing and they like it when I sing and I remember someone like a mom came up to me and be like you should look at doing Broadway songs and things like that I think you'd be great and I go up to my mom and I'm going mom somebody told me that I should like look into like Broadway I don't I don't know what that is it's my you know my mom's an immigrant nice working hard hard working immigrant woman and my dad didn't go to college and you know like they sent me to private school because they thought that's the right thing and they're doing they think they're doing all the right things and my mom answers back ah no uh you you know what do you do if you're an actor you have to kiss a bunch of people like, <laughs> like the whole thing was like you're going to be kissing like a bunch of people that's amazing don't don't be an actor wow <laughs> And so my dream was to become a pediatrician, (laughs) but really it was, I was obsessed with the show house and it was very much like, I just wanted to make people happy. Uh A bunch of my passwords from the time when I was like 10 years old up until like 15 was make people happy. Wow. Um, And that was literally like, I, I, I think I wanted to play the role of a doctor just because I would somehow fix people's ailments and like make them just forget their pain. And, and that's all I've ever wanted to do. And I remember one time at church Friday mass, the priest gave us a big talk of like, don't hide your talents. Don't, um, you need to share them with the world. And I'm going, how is my singing going to affect anybody? Like really, like wow. when, I'm at a karaoke, when I'm singing karaoke at a party, like whatever, I'm going to be responsible and be a doctor. Flash forward, flash forward. I go to Incarnate Word High School an all girls high school. Um, where they have one of the best choir programs at that time. And I'm just really like wanting to sing. I don't know what I'm doing. My parents don't know what I should be doing. Before that, I actually took voice lessons for like two seconds so so I could sing the national anthem for a sports banquet in San Antonio, like the CYO, the Catholic Youth Org sports banquet. And like the, the assistant coach for the San Antonio Spurs was there and it was supposed to be like this big deal. And Adam, I botched it. <laughs> little, little 10 year old Nicole, like choked and just, it was, it was so bad. It was the worst thing ever. Like I, that was like, my voice cracked. I was 10 years old. I got there because of, um, uh, a mom of one of my classmates goes, Nicole is the best singer ever. She should do this. She had all this faith in me and I just flopped so hard. It was so <laughs> bad. It was so bad. Well, and we, then, all, we all have to have that moment, right? Right. Yeah. And I think the, the, the second biggest flop was maybe the fifth grade. I was doing Stations of the Cross and that one song that's like, oh, sometimes my voice was cracking all over the place. It was like, oh, and it was bad. That was was the biggest flop. And then that was like the second biggest flop. And so 
not that it killed my wanting to sing, but it definitely just made me go, hmm, I don't know. It with and, you, clearly. <laughs> yeah, it, it did. Maybe it did. Um, I felt some some deep shame at that time, and my family didn't see any reason for me to continue voice lessons other than having it for the one thing. Yeah. Was like, oh, well, you sing naturally, so you don't need the tutelage. Nothing. No, no. Nah. So anyways, in high school, we start singing a bunch of musicals and I'm going, wow, this is fun. These are all fun songs. What, what is the story? And I mean, at that time, um, Adam is very uh, well-versed at having to teach people how to tell a story while they're singing. Because I'm sure like you have people that start with you and they're just wanting to sing and they, they're not telling yeah. the story. Like they're just singing to sing, which is not a bad thing. There are singers no. that do that every single day, but musical theater is different. You're telling the story because you're a character, X, Y, Z things. And then your voice um, is a conduit for that storytelling. Exactly. Yeah. And at this point, our teacher um, at that time, she, she was kind, she was, um, she was kind of hard. She was like a hard on us. And she was very keen on, on wanting us to sing a certain way, be a certain way. She's like, you need to tell a story with your eyes going, okay, I, what is that? And she's like, look up all of these things and see where they're from. And then I got hooked. I was like, hooked into musical theater. And I went to a, because I was still wanting to be a pediatrician, I go do a volunteer program at a hospital. And at that same summer, I was finally old enough to do this teen musical theater camp at this church I've always gone to since I was five. And would sing too loudly in the front row and the priest would be like, wow, she has a great voice. And that was just, that priest loved me because I had the loudest little voice for a five-year-old. <laughs> Going there since forever. Um, and new priest is putting on this program and I get there and I'm all like high and mighty. Cause I'm like, I'm not doing this forever. I'm going to be a doctor and I'm all, and then I fall in love with musical theater. It was like a classic rom-com where I'm playing hard to get. And I finally give in. <laughs> Such a good analogy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And I, and I'm still trying to fight it still. Like, it's just, now it's that kind of like the part of the rom-com where they're kind of having like a back and forth flirtation. And at that point I'm, I'm keeping it all to myself, not telling my parents why I'm wanting to sign up for dance classes or taking acting classes when I'm 17 and in my senior year. And I applied at DePaul University. Things get backtracked because my parents are divorced. I didn't get certain mail on time because for whatever reason, they still did paper mail. I miss out on the one program I really wanted to do which would have let me study music and do arts administration. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, I end up applying for theater management and I get in for that. But they tell me that I would never be able to even do a choir program because they're just so dead set on you just staying with the one concentration. Wow. And because I just discovered acting and musicals and everything so late, then I went to St. Edwards. I ended up being able to talk to the artistic director at that time, not knowing in my lack of experience what an artistic director was. So I went in guns ablazing, just treating him like a normal person. And I end up getting a scholarship. And then I just continue my existence at St. Edwards. And I don't know as much theater as the rest of the people there. And I'm just so ready and so eager to learn everything and anything. And I help out in every which way. And I go, you know what these people don't know? They don't know film as much. Huh. And I think we're all the same level there. So what I'm going to do is my plan of attack is get all of my general education done, but also just get into film as much as I can. Because I think that's going to be my way in. And now we're here, two awards later, one project coming up in June, possibly to have representation in LA and 
yeah, I, I think like my artistic statement as a person is I just keep following like this internal, I guess, nature that just drives me to want to make people happy. And it's made me happy. Back to the passwords. Yeah, back to those passwords. <laughs> I could go on to a whole separate tangent of how hard that was being, you know, Asian American and disappointing my parents and my family. And Well, so you bring that up. And my next question was going to be actually, you know, the title of this podcast, Cola Voce, means follow the voice. And so in following your voice, I am curious as to, I was going to ask you how that went over, you know, um, because one of the things that I've learned that I find really interesting is that in so many cultures where singing and creative expression are pretty ubiquitous when around the home or in the family or in social ways or in worship, things like that. So often it is sort of interestingly frowned upon that that would become one's vocation, even though it is such a shared experience growing up and of the family life. So when did you decide conclusively not to go the pediatrician route? And how did that, do you, is there, is there a kind of weird crisis there between, but this is how we grew up. And so I know that singing is a value, but I'm not quote supposed to pursue it. Yeah. And I, I love that word vocation because that's the word I turn back to when I say, and I stand firm in why I'm pursuing what I'm pursuing because it is a vocation. And for those of you who do not know what that word means, the more Christian elements of that is basically, they say it is how you best serve God, because that is, that is the gift that you have to share. Mm -hmm. But in, in just the regular, even layman's non, like the very secular terms of it, it really is just a calling. But that vocation, I, I, I do actually remember a specific moment. I don't know if other people have specific moments, but I was on stage and I was playing the part of farmer's wife. <laughs> well, <laughs> Not, yeah, I didn't even have my own name. I was named by proxy. <laughs> and I'm standing on stage with a bunch of really like sweaty, scared, smelly teens on this transformed stage in an outdoor church, which is beautiful. It's like a cove. But we're all just so nervous and sweaty. And this whole time, this director has been trying to tell us, like, come on, guys, you got to smile. Stop looking so nervous. Like, have some fun. Like, you love this, right? And in that moment, it was like, it, if there is, if this is a movie, there'd be flashbacks between my choir teacher yelling at me to, like, be more expressive and tell a story to this person being like, have fun and going, I love this. And so then while I'm on stage, I just feel myself gradually open up. In this way, I've never opened up before because the rest of my personal history is I've always, I think there's a French saying of like someone sitting in between two chairs. I don't know how the rest of that saying goes. <laughs> I don't know what would happen like physics wise if someone sits in between two chairs. Yes. How my life has been in terms of being in a multicultural divorced household, a feeling always so separated, a feeling like no place is actually my own. And to have that one thing that I carried with me all the time, which was my voice, become my own home. And getting to see that 
and it's not to be overly spiritual. And I don't know why I'm like making all these like very godly references when I, I literally struggled with my faith so much, but like to know that I've found home in myself in the house of God was so surreal. And it was, it was transcendent. God works and, in mysterious ways. Truly. And I felt like if, if there was some, some camera focused on my pupils, they probably would have enlarged tenfold. Yeah. <laughs> Like something broke through. And from then it was just a matter of fighting my voice, fighting and not finding it. Cause I found it. And I was like, how, how do I do this? <laughs> and I, there was actually a class in high school. It was kind of what, like a, just a, one of those like basket weaving classes you take just cause you have to, and it's a religion class. Cause we have to take one. And I just, I took it because it was either I would have to take like Christian law or I would get to take something about a vocation. Ah, uh, uh-huh. And we had to take these aptitude tests or rather these less about skill set, more about desire. And they would kind of ask you these tricky questions of like, how do you feel about this and that and this? And mine came out tenfold of being like, you could be a singer. You could be an actor. You could be a writer, director, uh, maybe a, like a therapist, who knows? But you, it was like all of these creative things. And I go up to my religion teacher carrying this booklet and being like, this is wrong. I'm, <laughs> this is all wrong. This is no. And she goes, well, why do you think so? And I go, I can't, I can't make any money being a singer. She goes, how do you know? You, you haven't tried yet. And then from there, the, the gears were just turning. And that was my junior year. So senior year was, I started enrolling in dance lessons and acting lessons. And I remember my mom being like, this, this is not real, right? You don't want to be an actor. You're just, it's for fun, right? Yeah, mom, absolutely. This is just for fun. Yeah. <laughs> purposefully inserted here because it was so blatant I was just loving every second of it um but the fallout did happen where I told my mom that I don't even think I told her I think I just did it and my dad was the only person that fully knew every every single piece sure and it was just like lying by omission at that point which I know is in the bros because I was like yeah I'll go to St. Edwards for business admin was the talk before I got the scholarship Uh and I'm just like yeah um (laughs) I'll go for business admin and I'll like minor in musical theater and just, I'll do that for fun. And I got the scholarship. And so I just was a theater major and my mom didn't know what she was paying for it, but my dad knew. And my dad thought I was going to get a business business admin minor. And then it ended up being a musical theater minor. Well, you know, business admin, musical (laughs) theater. (laughs) Same thing. Apples and apples. (laughs) (laughs) Banapples. That's that's what I was trying to sell was banapples, not even banapples. There you go. (laughs) I remember finally telling, breaking to my mom and being like, I told you this, right? And her being like, no, you did not tell me. But throughout all of this, there was just this big disappointment and I think apprehension of Mm -hmm. we gave you this much and you're not gonna go out and be a nurse. (laughs) Like Like they didn't even want me to be a doctor. The safe thing was the nurse. Like, oh, don't you want to, if you want a family, then you should be a nurse. So even the dream of a doctor was like too big. So then this dream in itself was kind of like, at a time when I'm making everyone else happy, I found something that made me happy. And I I remember just being kind of on eggshells, being a little bit estranged from my family. My grandma, my beloved, wonderful grandma, who's still cute, adorable, gummy bear-like, wrote me the most heartbreaking letter when I was a senior because... At that point, I think like even my mom was the only one that was kind of lost in the cro- in the communication. <laughs> but my aunt, uncle, my grandma also like had an idea of what I was trying to do. And my grandma writes me the letter that goes, please, 
please, I implore you, pick a different career. And it was just kind of hard. I was very, I was already away from home, even if it's an hour and a half drive away, but I'm like on my own, quote unquote, still living off of their money. I don't know what on my own means at that point. I feel like I'm on my own. But I use that opportunity to just really dig in, find exactly what I said of learning every single little piece. And it took like, I was, I didn't really talk to my family for like a good year, I want to say. Like actually talk, like polite talk, make sure I'm alive talk, but really like heart to heart talk for a really long time, a really long time. And the conversation now goes, they thought I hated them. Oh, wow. (laughs) They hated me. (sighs) And what changed their mind was because I was working so hard apart from film, I was the managing director. I ended up because I, DePaul, I was going for theater management and I ended up being like the managing director of the theater troupe at St. Edward's campus. And I was producing shows left and right and producing good, good things. Yeah. Impressing my professors, getting more scholarships and posting it online and showing my family, like, here's proof that I can make things happen. And they're going, you know, I see how hard you're working. You're just, you're going to succeed at whatever you do just because that's you. Oh, wow. So it came around. Came around. So that's a long-winded way if you want to edit this later, but. (laughs) No, con la voce. Con la voce. It's a, (laughs) it, it came around. And so then it became the flip side of that is also now they're going, oh, well, you're going to be there soon, right? And we're watching a Marvel movie and it's like some Marvel superhero. And I'm like, I'm going to (laughs) try. There are these misunderstandings of like, oh, well, you can definitely do all of this from Austin, right? Going, "Mm." and having the, the talks with grandma, who I'm the only person she's raised from babyhood, three months old, singing back to her exactly what she's saying to me up until 21 years old. She's the only person she's seen from that age to adulthood. I mean, part of the Filipino experience is they have these things called OFWs. They're overseas Filipino workers. Oh. And it's a big part of the culture where there's family. And I'm sure it's a part of a lot of cultures where it's, you know, it's a third world country. But it's all a part of the idea of making the lives better for your family, uh-huh. your, your own personal continuing immediate family or your family back home. There's this whole thing of sending a balik bayan box. I'm sure I'm Americanizing the, the garbage out of that word right now. Balak by balak balak bayan box. There, I got. It. Um, but what that is, it means like you're sending pasalubong, which is it. It means a box a box of gifts that you send back home. Uh-huh. And that's like a whole culture. Like all every Christmas, it's like there's Santa Claus with his elves. There's overseas family sending gifts back home to the Philippines for Christmas. Wow. you're like well what do you send them it's like you send like it's it's a status symbol to be walking around with like ritz crackers casually in your pantry in the philippines (laughs) it's a status symbol to walk around with levi jeans or nike products and they have those there but they're like at a markup and to put it back to my grandma she worked in saudi arabia for like nine years and was there 11 months out of nine years had six children missed the childhood of everyone except for like one to two kids Oh my gosh. So literally me having to tell her, Lola, I have to go to LA. Yeah. Cause she's, she's in San Antonio. That was a big deal. Cause I mean, there's now this wonderful, I, I approve of this quote unquote stereotype of the grand, the Asian granddaughter and Asian grandma, but like 
it's true on that level but like my my grandma and I are to this level of she her, my grandpa and her were kind of my parents in the sense of my dad would travel a lot not of any fault of his he's done a lot for me but yeah. the person that was there to witness my childhood every day every single day as much as they could were my grandparents so you know that that's it's a different relationship and I think like at this point where I'm at that's the part that's been hardest because it's very communal. It's a very communal culture. And I, I mean, I, I talk to my grandma every morning, every evening. Sometimes I'll door dash her like a smoothie bowl. <laughs> I love her so much. And that's that. those are the things where like, yeah, she was questioning why I was doing this, but it was never of my own ability. It was their own fear. They know what works, which is to be a nurse which is what provided the American dollar from Saudi Arabia for a family of six, which is what, how my mom has been able to create a living out here. You know, like that's, that to them was like the secret to having a good life. And that's all they ever wanted for me. So I, I never look at that with spite like I used to. I used to look at it with so much spite of like, they don't want me here, it's hard. But I see it of like, no, they just, they love you that much. They wanted to make that you could, truly live the way that they had wanted you to yes yeah nicole came to my church virtually saint luke united methodist church here in austin where i'm the director of music a few weeks ago as part of a lenten series that i was leading called changed for good so good that is such a good (laughs) (laughs) title it 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 tickles my heart (laughs) (laughs) well we were talking about musical theater lenses on different themes of Lent. And so Nicole graciously came and discussed her observations and thoughts of Miss Saigon and xenophobia with us. And the response to that, Nicole, I don't know if I ever told you, but people really were quite, I don't know what the right word is. What was, what's the right verb? People were real. it made, it really made people think. People really left that session with a lot of thoughts that I think they may not have had and some realizations that they may not have had. I know that's true for me. And I got a lot of uh, really wonderful feedback about that. So thank you for sharing. Oh, you're welcome. And I'm happy that it touched people and it made them think. And I don't know why my automatic response is to apologize for making people think, <laughs> but I, I hope it, it reached them at a time when their hearts were open to thinking. Because I think sometimes that's part of it, right? It's that's that's the key. It's the timing. It's the are you doing this for an agenda or are you doing this because you're all ready to sit down and have an understanding? Absolutely. And, and I, I loved I loved being a part of that and being invited to that and and seeing that there are people willing to listen because friends before uh this wonderful podcast was being recorded adam was being a wonderful friend and listening to the everything that life has had to offer in la and i would say that more than half the time it's always just refreshing to know that there are ears that listen and hearts that will reach out and tell you that your heart has gone through so much and what it's gone through is something that not not that they can fix not that anything can be like truly done in the moment, but that someone cares is what I'm trying to say. So you might thank me for even saying that, but it was nice to just have people look me in the quote unquote eye, or at least virtual eye and tell me to my face, like, I'm sorry. And I want to help. 
Yes. And because I think there is that feeling of helplessness on both sides sometimes. And maybe that can even be part of the venning, you know, that's that center of that Venn diagram on occasion, I think, because there is a shared desire to move things forward, but where one of the two parties has actually had the experience and the other party wants to be an ally and both in different ways perhaps feel somewhat helpless. And that was part of the goal of that series was to reflect on so much that's happened this past year. I mean, it's it's really quite remarkable that that we got through as a world 2020 and 2021 to where we are right now. And all of the people who didn't get through to the other side. I think we owe it to every one of those people to understand each other more, to empathize more, to be better allies to everyone around us. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, like in this crazy, crazy world, I've found myself protected not by the people who think the most like me, but those who are actually quite politically different. And that doesn't make me any kind of leftist sellout or moderate sellout or some kind of person that compromises their beliefs. It means that, not that I'm trying to put myself on some kind of pedestal or virtue signal, but like it's, it's actively having very hard, hard conversations. It's telling a friend why saying China virus isn't the best thing to say. And also owning the fact that I've gone through traumatic experiences that probably make me get triggered, emotionally triggered by that word. And owning that and, and doing the work by myself with and with a therapist to make sure that even if I do hear those words, I'm not going to hate the person that says them. Instead, I'm going to be empathetic and I'm going to go, do you know how that word affects me? It means that when I hear that word, I think of how my grandma can't walk outside. She can't walk outside without feeling like she's going to be attacked. And that actually just recently happened, Adam, <laughs> as well, where my mind is afraid of things of my grandma who goes to the bus stop and walks to her senior center and exercises and wants to, you know, socialize with other cute old ladies and, and learn how to play piano and all of these things. And, and she's at the, the beautiful age of 82 wanting to do all of these things. And COVID took that away. And now the blame of COVID is taking that away because she looks so blatantly Asian. But recently, because now my grandma is hearing all of this hate that's coming our way for no apparent reason, she saw some neighborhood kids in our front yard and thought that they were stealing from us mm. and wanted to go talk to them and thought that they were going to hurt her because they were just playing with like little stones and she thought that they were going to throw them at her. Now it's just an inherent fear. I talk to other Asians, their fears, their, their mothers fearing for their children walking out and being apprehended by somebody who's going to pin a whole world of devastation on them just because of what they look like. When last time I checked, and it's not just America that failed, there's Italy, there's Argentina, there's India, there's Brazil, there are all of these places that failed us during the pandemic that's not just politically aligned. So we didn't know what we didn't know. But what they're trying to know is who to pin this on, and it's nobody. It's nobody 
but this weird cataclysmic place we are at in history that all of us are living through and all of us are a bit traumatized from. Well, and there's society, right? As it's interesting to hear you say it that way, because when you think of the alchemy of what makes a pandemic, uh, the physical virus, COVID-19, right? The biological entity, that is one aspect of a pandemic, I think, and certainly never having lived through a pandemic before, as I imagine most people who are alive now. Oh, you haven't? You know, I haven't. I haven't. This is shocking. (laughs) You know, when you think about pandemic, there is so much that is tantamount to cultural shift in pandemic and to cultural blindness and to not only the physical thing, but gosh, does it ever hold a magnifying glass to the demic, quote unquote, that is society. Mm -hmm. And wow, the fact that we feel as though there must be blame to be pointed for everything in the world is really quite surprising every time it happens, but it happens daily. So perhaps it shouldn't be so surprising, but then existentially, where does that leave you? It leaves you with taking on your own accountability. Mm -hmm. It leaves you with this kind of either like nihilism, existentialism of, wow, maybe I just got turned into, or maybe I've just been entered into this very weird point of fate, of time, of history. That's really not the best. We think of the people, the people living through the bubonic plague or who was on Pompeii <laughs> and or the Titanic. And we're going, oh, they definitely like that was tragic. Oh, <laughs> well, what, what do we what, what is it like? What what is what could have been helped other than the knowledge we have now? Yes. People using the term unprecedented. And of course, I'm sure I've used it. I'm sure I've used the term unprecedented. It's a total falsity. These are not unprecedented times. Very precedented times, in fact. They may be unprecedented in many ways in our lifetimes, but unprecedented, no. So that learning from history, someone was saying to me the other day that it's going to be really surreal when in five years from now all of these films and documentaries and i mean maybe it'll be earlier than or sooner than five years but all of these artifacts are going to come out about covid and certainly some of them will probably be historical fiction and some of them will be documentaries and all just trying to wrap our heads around that moment in the arts and other ways is going to be really crazy. Absolutely. Again, I go back to something like the Titanic where we're all going, wow, didn't they know that iceberg would just take them down? Why didn't they have enough lifeboats? They didn't have an answer in the moment. They were just running for their lives. That's right. It's crazy to think that in this moment, so many people are getting inoculated and vaccinated and they're evading death. And that in itself is already a surreal thing to process. That's right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And the whole hearing that wonderful, uh, almost, what is it? Like a drinking game worthy word of unprecedented, like the amount of times you've heard that either on the news or whatever, but you're right. Like, it's just, 
we've we've lived this a thousand times as a as a people but not as ourselves absolutely the transmission of knowledge is always a hard thing right like that's why we read and we have scholars and we have people who make it their expertise and life's mission to study these things and for whatever reason we just totally disregard them <laughs> so i want to turn to talk about miss saigon with you there was a revival of Miss Saigon that was on Broadway a few years ago. And I thought personally that it was brilliant. I know that you saw it as well, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The last thing I saw before COVID shut down, actually, it was was in, it really? I was at the Majestic in San Antonio and I saw it with my aunt. Wow. The last thing before COVID shut us down. Wow. A question I have for you. So I was in a doctoral seminar in grad school and I had prior to that been unfamiliar with the term and then book orientalism by edward said and edward said's concept of orientalism boiled down of course much more complex than this but the west experiences the east in the way that the west constructs the east you know exoticism for example would perhaps be an example of Orientalism, that we in the West have this way of constructing the East and that we then proceed with our perceptions according to the way we have as Westerners constructed the East. And I'm interested to know for you as an actress who does musical theater, shows like, and I'm I don't want to, again, this has kind of been apples, right? I don't want to necessarily compare apples and oranges. Yeah, they are apples and oranges in some ways, but shows like Miss Saigon or like The King and I, as a Filipino actress, how do you come to those shows? Are they acceptable? Are they positive? Are they, and again, those are two very different shows. I mean, I know my experiences with The King and I, for example, you know, of course it was, yes, we all know it was a different time when it was written. And, but I'm just interested to know what your, what your generalized, that could be a whole dissertation, I know, but mm -hmm. sort of generalized thoughts are on, on those musicals or others. Well, I will have to say that I feel like whatever answer I'm going to give is already going to be a little bit tarnished than the answer I would have given when I was fresh coming into this going like, what the heck, this is all I have. Because where I'm at now was different from where I was then. Because right now I'm an actor going like, I would love all the opportunities. And I feel like that's the trap that we get put into as an exotic, quote unquote, exotic minority, right? Which is this theory of scarcity, 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 of it just being scarce, scarce, that. <laughs> There's a limited amount of it for us. Therefore, even the people that we're acting next to, we're looking at as competition. We're not actually brethren, sisters, whatever. We're all just trying to get the part. We're all just trying to make sure that we at least end up on Broadway in some way. So there's this part of me that I think has become a little bit jaded where I'm going, sure, I'll do whatever the heck you want me to do, even if it's kind of not my jam to be, you know, force feeding the kind of picture exotic flower um, Chinese or Asian or whatever woman to you because that's what you want me to be. Uh, it's it's kind of like, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do the job. And I think that's not even Asian specific. I think that's a lot of minorities. I know like Latinx women who feel very objectified 
by the kind of persona they have to fulfill in media. Um, and I think the same thing goes for Asian women. I'm, I'm not so familiar with like when it comes to the black experience to that other than the fact that they also feel tokenized. But I, a lot of my friends who I have these conversations with happen to be Latinx and they agree on the same way of like, we're seen as exactly what you said of being exotic or other. And they'll put us right next to a white man. Why? I don't know, maybe colonialism, <laughs> maybe um, <laughs> that it's such a big part of at least the country of the Philippines, colonialism is still such a weird thing that affects people. Those people are bleaching their skin as we speak. They're putting IVs in their skin to become whiter because to them being white is beautiful. Where I don't even know, like that, that's a sad part. I don't even know if I'm beautiful here. People will tell me that, but I'm going, am I? Because for a while, you all were saying I had to be Reese Witherspoon, legally blonde Barbie. And I was hating myself for not being blonde and blue eyed and quote unquote, normal American girl. I'm sorry, that's one big giant tangent, but jaded me goes, sure, I'll do the job. Fresher, unjaded me goes, you know, I would love it if irregardless of what ethnic makeup that character has to be that I could just play it, you know, like Shakespeare, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I could play that role. It doesn't matter that I am outwardly Asian because, you know, honestly, inwardly, I'm white. I can pull out a good Filipino accent for, you know, a good anecdote. I can't speak it fluently, but for whatever reason, people are just going to be like, oh, you can speak it fluently, right? No, <laughs> no, I can't. I, I remember having this kind of very sad, depressive episode where I'm studying musical theater at, in college and it's a full-on musical survey of musical theater class and we're studying South Pacific and I'm going why is that character's voice not there and I oh forgive me for not knowing her name right off the bat but it's the one that's like talk about things you like to yeah I believe I it's not Lunta that's uh King and I and I'm not gonna think I'm not gonna remember it uh, yeah, I, but we <laughs> yeah we are talking about the same person. Yes. We're talking about the same person. Not Bloody Mary. Not Bloody Mary. Her daughter, Bloody no, Mary. That's exactly yes. That's who we're thinking of, and we're both blanking. It's okay. We're forgiven. <laughs> oh, um, but that's my point. We don't even remember her name because she wasn't right. given right. any agency. Some man just said younger than springtime and colonialized her. <laughs> But that, that made me a bit sad and I brought it up in class of like, so is she really just reduced to this type of caricature? And I remember being told like, well, this musical was groundbreaking because we were taught to be carefully taught <laughs> because that song came out and that was groundbreaking. And yeah, I think when I look at something like the revival of Miss Saigon, it's the community taking ownership of their narrative and people going out of their way to make sure that it's an accurate, fully fleshed out interpretation of the truth, because that's what art is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the truth, unless you're blatantly going for escapism. And for something that, it, it's a poignant musical, that's not escapism. There's no way that that musical is escapism. And I we talked about this um, when I was invited to talk to your Lenten group, which was like the set design for the revival. There was pieces of like a, how I would say that Ritz, Ritz crackers are a luxury or a status symbol to have casually in your pantry in the Philippines. There were like American boxes of snacks just kind of interwoven into the set pieces. Wow. Into the shanties that were there. Yes. And that's 
And because I had just came back from the Philippines December of 2019 and came back in the beginning of 2021, it hit even harder. It hit me and my aunt in a very, very hard place in our hearts where we're going, that's exactly what we've experienced, or that's exactly what we see when we go back home. And, you know, I have to say that as someone who has never been to the Philippines, now I'll give myself a little bit of grace because I have a vision impairment, but seeing that same production, I didn't even notice them. I didn't notice those American, you know, snack boxes. Yeah, the snack cans. Like it's like, because initially it's like, if I hadn't just gone to the Philippines, I would have been like, oh, it's like when homeless people have like the random things, but these are uncommon objects. These are like sacred objects almost. And anyone can come back and try to correct me on whatever I'm saying, I'm sure, try to fact check me, whatever you want. But I just know from seeing it that that's really how myself and my aunt felt after seeing that production. And when you compare it to these caricatures that Asians are told that they have to play because of that scarcity, we'll go, okay, we'll do it. Are we gonna be artistically fulfilled? No. Can we pretend like we are? We'll try to find the joy because we're actors, it's our calling. (laughs) We'll do the job. That's the job and not the vocation part. Yes, exactly. That's me crunching numbers at work, <laughs> not not fulfilling my calling to share my experience. Because yeah. I think now the vocation has really changed from to make people happy, to making myself happy, to showing people what's beautiful. Yes. Making people feel beautiful. It was so rare that I actually felt beautiful growing up. Well, it's cliche, but I think you're gorgeous inside and out and always have. <laughs> Well, that was me meowing like a cat. Because what? Thank you, Adam. <laughs> but you mentioned blatant escapism. <laughs> and I want to conclude our time today with some blatant escapism. Because I have a little game that I love to play on this show, this podcast. I guess it's not a show like the old days. And this game is called Voice Memos. Okay, so I am going to ask you 10 questions, Nicole. It's just for fun. Get to know you a little better about your favorite blank. Maybe this is just your favorite blank today. You know, not etching anything in stone, but I'm very excited to hear. Who's your favorite performer? Oh, Michael Jackson. I know that that's problematic, but can't explain why. Favorite album? Favorite album is The Lonely Hour by Sam Smith. Wow, you're fast at these. (laughs) Not surprised. Favorite movie? Favorite movie, The Godfather, but it's changed to Shoplifters, which is a Japanese foreign film, really beautiful. So maybe like a good tie. A tie there. Okay, well, how about favorite movie soundtrack? Favorite movie soundtrack would be My Fair Lady. Yeah, (laughs) My Fair Lady. I love it. (laughs) Bringing it back. Favorite musical group? Uh, The Runaways. The Runaways. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm learning some stuff here. (laughs) Favorite song about a passion of yours? This is a hard one. Oh, 
what is it? The one of the rap battles. I think it's the second cabinet battle from Hamilton. I know that's super cliche, but like I'm used to be I'm, I'm used to being very opinionated, argumentative. And I had that like all in a bag where I was just snapping my fingers, just laying out that rap 24-7. I me, love it. Help me pass a, AP US history. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Lynn Manuel will be very happy about that, I'm sure. <laughs> musical genre. Favorite musical genre. <sighs> I'm a sucker for classics, just be- despite the lack of stereotypes. Um, let's just put it as like, I would love to play like a Lori from Oklahoma once, or specifically Eliza Doolittle. I would love okay. to play. Yeah, I would love to play Eliza Doolittle. So like golden age musicals. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That that totally escaped me. Golden age it. musicals. Surpri- yeah. Surprisingly. Golden yeah, because you have such a contemporary voice. That's awesome. I know. <laughs> I mean, you're, very, you're very versatile. I never want to say somebody has such a, you know, but I've heard you sing yeah. a lot. <laughs> Favorite speaker or thought leader? Um, I love Jay Shetty. He he came in during a very important part of my life. I love what he has to bring to the table. Um, and actually, Nelson Mandela is actually a, a really, I think, he's a great guy. But reading his his uh, um a biography from the person who wrote his who like was the ghostwriter for I believe his autobiography. Yeah. It was just observations of Nelson Mandela. And I could go into like a whole dissertation about that book, but wow. the best thing that I can leave, like grant you from that book was he said, have a part of you that is like a garden and let that garden grow. So for me, even when I'm doing film acting, it is my voice. When I get to do my voice, it's my garden. And it's the thing that I love spending all my time and giving and nurturing, not even knowing if something can come out of it. Before we get back to our interview, a big shout out to Riley Wesson for editing this episode, Scott Ferguson for graphic design, and Jay Quinton Johnson for writing and performing the Voice Memos theme. Voice Memos! Well, Nicole, normally I ask the 10th loaded question of favorite podcast host, <laughs> but I could not possibly ask that after that answer. It makes me think... Of so many garden metaphors, the secret garden and, you know, the way that gardens are used, let your garden grow, um, let our garden grow Uh, and all of these different beautiful ways. And I'm just going to ask, could you could you conclude our time together with saying that one more time, the way that you just said that? There's going to be parts of your life that are going to require so much of your attention. And it's important to save one little niche wonderful code for yourself and that is your garden that you nurture that you grow that you give to without any hesitation just because it grants you pure enjoyment so you let that garden grow and for you nicole that's cola voce follow (laughs) the voice absolutely incredible thank you so much for taking the time today i it is always such a joy and a pleasure to talk with you and to share in life with you and I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon in person. In person. I gosh, I hope so. Can I take two seconds to just do a plug and chug of things that are happening? Do it. So um there is I have one film coming up in June that is for certain, filming that first week. And um I'm in a band called Bridge Crew. We get to wear Star Trek uniforms and we'll sing at your local club. Yes, singing- Bridge Crew. Yes, Bridge Crew spelled exact, like Motley Crew, but Bridge and wearing Star Trek uniforms. And last plug is I will be at the World Fest Film Festival next weekend in Houston. 
um, promoting my film Fallen Sparrow, which is doing its actual big premiere that it never got to do during the rest of COVID. I've won an award for best actress from that from the LA Shorts Film Festival that had like Kevin Bacon in it. Yeah, so if you're in Houston, and I'm sure this podcast will come out way afterwards, but uh, (laughs) in time, you might be able to catch Falling Sparrow on Amazon Prime um, in the near, not so near future, but in the future. And follow, you can look me up on IMDb Pro. I go by Nicole Marquez Davis. (laughs) Um, And we will be posting all of those uh, links and handles and everything in the description with the podcast amazing um Adam. everybody you want to follow you want to follow nicole and her trajectory because nicole is already doing big things it's not that she's going to do big things she is an impact on the world and so thank you again for being with me today thanks for joining me on today's episode of cola voce and until next time remember follow your heart and follow your voice <laughs>